tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. For the activists and graduates I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth This is the groove, tell me, can yeah. it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame I kidnapped greatness and left no ransom This is the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney brought to you by 4th District Justin, we're a week out from the midterms. Uh, how, how, are you, how are you feeling? We got a busy week ahead of us. It's getting close, brother. It seems to be the only thing folks are talking about, at least in our circles, and it's going to be a, a nail biter to some extent. I know here in Georgia, they're saying that there may actually be a runoff in the governor's race, so it might not even be over on the 6th. I surely hope that it, it is over yeah. on the 6th one way or another, but it is the talk, and uh, we'll be getting into it quite a bit in these next uh, in this next week or so. Absolutely. My, um, my, um, well, so in Georgia, uh, y'all are going to have both, uh, former president Obama and president Trump coming through the state all in the next few days here, which is going to be, going to be interesting. So Georgia, it's really interesting to see Georgia attracting uh, so, so much attention. Uh, I think both for the, uh, governor's race and then, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if any of the house seats, uh, particularly sort of like Atlanta suburbs, are are in play. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, all the star power uh, that that y'all have coming through. Yeah, we uh, have some heavy, heavy hitters coming down here. Anytime you got President Obama and the sitting president coming down for uh, a race in the South, which was, you know, a red state, you know that it's a close race. And so like most of these races, what is going to come down to not people changing their minds at the last minute. I don't think that's what's going on, but it's who can fire up their base, who can get people out to vote. Even myself at church, we had a souls to the polls on Sunday. And so we were trying to get people out to vote, uh, obviously not telling them who to vote for, but saying be civically engaged. And so I know there are a lot of churches throughout uh, Atlanta doing the same. And it's just that time. And if you want to have your voice heard, this is the time to do it. Not only go out and vote, but organize some people, uh, take some folks with you, talk about these issues with folks so they know the importance of it. And that's all part of our civic uh, duty. Yeah. And, you know, at the end campaign, we provided a resource for folks last week. uh, That's a voter guide, five questions to ask before you head to the polls. And it's been just wonderful to see uh, just in the first 12 hours of launching that thing, hundreds of people sign up to get it. Now, uh, now the, the numbers are even higher. And if you want to access this voter guide, uh, you can just go to the and uh, uh, there will be a pop up. Or if you visit the site uh, regularly, uh, you'll see a tab up on the top of the website. But just put in your email and you'll get this voter guide that that really is an campaign trying to provide uh, you with questions that don't uh, aren't manipulative, aren't sort of uh, anxiety inducing, but uh, are questions that will help you frame not just how you're going to vote, but will hopefully help uh, churches and small groups and families have conversations about why uh, why they intend to vote uh, the, the way that they are and, and even help them figure out uh, if they don't know yet uh, how they'll vote. And so would encourage folks to, to check that out. Um, and then, Justin, we have a we have a busy week. So um, Monday, we're going to be doing a uh, a live uh, Facebook event. Uh, the night before the election, uh, and then the day after the election on Wednesday in Atlanta, uh, we're going to be doing a live event 
with Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Justin and I will be there uh, to, it'll be the first sort of extensive uh, uh uh, uh, look at the midterm results that the Ann campaign will be uh, putting out. Uh, it'll be live streamed. If you're in Atlanta, you could join us in person. Uh, and we're really excited about it. Yeah, it should be great. Uh, again, we have on November, Monday, November 5th, we have the night before the vote uh, Facebook live stream that you can check out myself, uh, Michael and Chris Butler, who's our end campaign brother out in Chicago. We'll be talking about the midterms in our respective states, but generally around the nation. And as he as you just heard, we will also be having our Christian political roundtable on November 7th, Wednesday, November 7th, the day after the midterms, uh, where we'll be talking about recounting what, what just happened and also looking forward, making sure that we're not just talking about politics not the days or weeks before an actual election, but that we're planning ahead of time for the next cycle. So you'll see those type of things a lot more from the end campaign, along with the voter's guide. Uh, we want to keep you informed. We want to make sure that we're raising civic literacy so that when Christians go out, that we are actually engaged from an, a place of uh, being informed and really having an impact on uh, what's going on. So keep keep a lookout for all of that stuff because we're, we're trying to bring as much information to you as possible from a Christian worldview. Absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to save a lot of talk about midterms for those events since uh, they'll all be coming up in the next week. Uh, but uh, just to sort of set a, a, a couple early benchmarks. You know, last week we saw uh, USA Today had Trump's approval rating at 47%, so sort of rising as he's been, you know, increasingly campaigning. And I know as Republicans uh, in a lot of these races have decided that they're better off uh, sticking close to him than distancing themselves from Trump. And so I think that's helped his approval rating. Gallup's numbers out uh, today have the president at 44, which is a bit more of sort of his average, um, uh, uh, maybe a little bit above the, the mean for him. Uh, but it's going to be a factor to see his approval ratings in, in the mid to high 40s rather than the high 30s, low 40s um, going into this midterm election. The prognosticators still have uh, the, the likelihood uh, of Democrats taking back the House and Republicans holding on to the Senate. Uh, but but listen, folks, uh, th- th- this is going to be a volatile election. There are a lot of sort of uh, late pressing issues that could influence turnout, could even lead to some last minute persuasion of uh, or uh, undecideds deciding to go one way or the other. Well, one uh, analyst says that there could be as many as 15 to 20 house races that are decided by a point or less. And so uh, we, uh, I think there's a range of uh, uh, outcomes that are possible when it comes to the house and the Senate on midterms. And then don't forget uh, uh, all these governor's races all these state legislature races uh, that are going to have a deep impact. Uh, some might say uh, a deeper impact the more local you go uh, into the daily lives of folks than even some of these federal races. And so there's just going to be there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, there are going to be a lot of decisions made for the political future of our our country uh, in just a week. And uh, and we're looking forward to, to uh, following and help you sort through all of that. Uh, J- Justin, do you have uh, any any sort of again, we're going to be uh, spending a lot of time talking about the midterms uh, uh, over the next you know week. But uh, just as things have developed since the last podcast episode, do you have any uh, sort of. Uh, uh, any any new in, insights that you think into uh, how things are? Not shaping? a whole lot of new insights, but just as a kind of a segue into the next uh, portion, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if some of these tragedies actually have an impact on the election or on on some of these polls. I'm not sure that they will, but it's possible. I mean, when you have so many races that are this close anything could kind of tip the balance of who who it fires up and who actually decides to get out there and vote. So we'll, we'll just have to see. We'll be having a lot more of that um, analysis in the next in the next week. So just stay tuned. Yeah. 
All right. Let's um, let's take a quick break before we uh, get into uh, uh, this this last week's news. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast, uh, and Justin. Last week we saw uh, another tragedy uh, in a house of worship uh, in Pittsburgh. The esteemed, uh, kind of prolific Tree of Life Congregation Synagogue in Squirrel Hill uh, was stormed by uh, a 46-year-old man, Robert Bowers, um, who was shouting uh, anti-Semitic epitaphs and uh, uh, and, uh, shot uh, and killed uh, eight individuals uh with um with a firearm uh it it seems uh police are still sorting through sort of the 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 evidence uh but it seems that he was uh motivated in part by uh, uh his opposition to the hebrew immigrant aid society an organization i've had the honor of working with uh, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Well, it's it's in the name. They're they're a Jewish organization that has been helping resettle uh, uh, immigrants uh, and, and refugees, and have been serving people who are coming out of you know horrendous, violent situations, much like we discussed last week, uh, and has been helping to settle them. Uh, and uh, Bowers wrote. Uh, in opposition to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society's work, and also uh, wrote about a number of conspiracy theories and his opposition to the migrant caravan, which we discussed last week. And so you could listen to last week's episode for our our thoughts on that. Maybe it will come up again. Um, but our hearts are uh, with the city of Pittsburgh, with the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, Um it was very sad reading the stories to hear that uh, a, a uh, uh, that that you know just uh, to to imagine this the scene there, um, and, and then Justin, you, you know, it, there was the incident in Louisville uh, where uh, a man with a gun appeared, shot two people at a supermarket um, when spotting uh, a, a man in the parking lot who had a revolver on him, a, a you know, a peaceful bystander. He uh, told him that as long as uh, that man didn't, the shooter said, as long as that man didn't shoot him, then he wanted to shoot him. Whites don't shoot whites. Uh, he said, um, it, it, it was a was a heavy week last week. Heavy because of um, all of the uh, heavy because of these incidents. Heavy because of such tragedy. Um, and then, of course, it was it was heavy because uh, less than two weeks out from midterm elections, it the political implications of which there are some, and we'll talk about that. But it. Uh, all other whole other layers were added very quickly to how we were processing these tragedies. So, uh, Justin, uh, I know you have some some significant thoughts about uh, how this whole uh, conversation about um, these incidents played out, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, you touched on it a little bit. The political elements and political posturing that was added immediately. I don't think there was too much time for anything else. It seemed that immediately, at least when you're looking on Twitter and some of these uh, uh, looking into mass media, there was already this political layer that's put on top of everything. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, First and foremost, I do think that our prayers go out to the families of those lost in these tragedies. Um, Losing a loved one is is always tough. And under these circumstances, it's just uh, really sad. We should all be mourning with those who are mourning right now. Um, And brother, where this is really where the state of American discourse, uh, where it matters, because it determines a, a few things. I think it determines whether or not we can actually talk through this and get something done in regard to solutions. 
uh, determines if anyone will let down their defense, their self defenses uh, to accept any blame or correction. Um, mm. And it also determines if solutions are more important than political one one up upsmanship. Um, and so far, from what I can tell, sadly, regrettably, the answer has been no. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of self-examination from from anybody on either side. Um, right. Not only have I not seen the self-examination, but I haven't seen the grace that allows others to self-search without fear of being completely demonized. Uh, so it does work mm. both ways to some extent. Um, and so we just, you know, at the end of the day, and you can say this sounds corny or not, but the question that we have to answer as Americans is, can we stand shoulder to shoulder, hold hands, however you want to put it, to find solutions? And what I'm seeing based on this tragedy is that apparently this tragedy just wasn't big enough for us to do that because we put a whole bunch of other concerns mm. in front of the actual human aspect of what happened here. Um I do think, and I'll get into this a little bit, I do think Republicans have to do some self-examination on the rhetoric that they allow. And that's not to put all the blame on their backs, but I think you do have to take right. a look at that. Um, that's first and foremost. But we all have something that we could look at. Uh, d- Democrats, I think one thing I try to do in my conversations with friends is say, look, let's let's be honest about the fact that most Americans, Republican or Democrat, do not think this is acceptable. Right. So for me to go around and act like, oh, you know, this is a Republican thing and, you know, this is this is the state of Republicanism. That's a bit that's going a bit too far. And I think that's harmful just to the discourse in general. Are there some things that that I think may need to be addressed as far as what is allowed, uh, what is appropriate um, when you're speaking at rallies and things of that nature? Absolutely. But it'd be intellectually dishonest for me to act like most Republicans think this is okay, or or they said it was all right. Now, are you condoning things that lead up to it? Let's have that conversation. Um, but we we definitely need to just do some self reflection and allow others to do the same. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, right. I I really view this in in three levels. At, at one fundamental level, right, like. No one else to bl- is to blame except for the shooter. <laughs> it was his decision, and in, at one level, to uh, to sort of blame anyone but him is to not take the act seriously, uh, and and to not. Um, it, 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 it's uh, I don't know. It strikes me as as a form of of injustice itself to, to because of the political environment. No, no, this was a man who decided whatever his mental state was. And, and I think we're still learning more about that, but, uh, 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 he, 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 he was, he was the man with the gun. He was the one, uh, screaming anti-Semitic epithets on another level. Right. Uh, Political leaders carry special responsibility uh, for what they're providing and how they're speaking into the culture and whether they're calling out better angels or whether they're uh, capitalizing and uh, uh, trying to use people's fears against them. And I do think that's what we've seen uh, last week with the migrant caravan story, uh, we're seeing now, um, uh, we're seeing now, you know, a week before the election, the department of defense is sending 5,000, uh, military personnel down to the border. Now, some on the left are, uh, not giving the whole story. These military personnel aren't, uh, allowed to in- interact with migrants. They're mostly going to be, uh, building, uh, building, um, uh, uh, housing for the folks that are, are working down there on the border and doing some, some, some other, uh, some other work that won't be uh, like, they're not going to be enforcing the border. Um, uh, b- but, uh, the, the fact that this decision is being made a week before the election, it seems, seems to me a little, uh, a little, little suspicious. And then, like you said, Justin, no, Democrats uh, also play a role. That's not to say both sides. That's to say that politicians have to take responsibility for themselves. Uh, the president, most of all, because he is the one, uh, he is the most uh, 
influential purveyor of political culture. Uh, he's the one whose voice is going to be heard above everybody else's. Uh, there was an interesting moment in one of his recent rallies uh, following the, the synagogue, uh, uh, following the shooting where he actually, uh, and this leads me to sort of the third level, the third point I want to talk about, uh, President Trump said that he was going to um, take a little bit of a, a lighter tone. Uh, he, he, he told uh, the audience at his rally uh, he said, I'm going to take a little bit of a lighter tone. I hope you don't mind. And the audience groaned and they, they, they complained. They said, no, we don't want you to take a softer tone. And he said, and he said, I thought you might say that. And so the, the third level, the, the shooter, the person, the person who is most directly responsible for the crime are politicians and cultural leaders who are, who are creating some of this environment where, uh, people who are uh, generally unstable have all these various inputs that are, uh, I think, preying on their instability. And then at the third level is all of us. <laughs> all of us who are participating in this society, which is all of us, and what we, as we talk on this show quite often, what we are willing to accept from politicians to advance uh, our personal interests and what we what we think are is our political interests. Uh, how many times have you? Uh, how many times have I uh, been willing to laugh off or been willing to rationalize uh, 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 some of the more ludicrous incendiary things? Whether it's out of a desire of uh, you know not empowering people who say crazy things, not empowering birtherism or whatever, um, but but how many times are we willing to uh, uh, excuse away rhetoric that that harms the souls and the spirits of our neighbors, and that can create an environment where something like this is more likely? And so I, I agree with you, Justin. I think there's responsibility to be shared. I, I, I do think it's important to not obfuscate or sort of, uh, for political reasons, deflect. The, the primary person responsible is the shooter. Uh, there were, there, we're all hearing this rhetoric. We're all hearing about uh, all this stuff from both sides. That this man decided uh, to walk into a synagogue and and shoot at eight children of God, and he is primarily primarily responsible. But this kind of incident does, uh, I think, beg of us to to look in the mirror, and especially a week out from elections. Uh, be thinking about the, the the kind of leaders we want in political office. Yeah, and for Christians especially, one thing that we can all think about and reflect on is, are we even hopeful enough to seek solutions? Because when I look at the rhetoric of some of the people, whether it be talking heads or some of the folks that you see on, on uh, social media, I'm not convinced that they believe solutions are possible. I think the height of what they think is possible is an exchange of power or complete control for their side, rather than having the hopefulness to say, no, I think we can actually make this better together. I don't see a whole lot of that. I see I see what, what's being articulated to me. The message that I'm, I'm, I'm getting is the other side is hopeless until they just go away or completely are out of power, we're in trouble. And I think that's problematic. Yep. Yep. Surely there are times in history where there's there's a side to a conversation that is, you know, is a, per, perhaps a lost cause. But as Christians, we should have hopefulness and, and understanding that there's brokenness on both sides, but also a hopefulness that uh, through the almighty God, that these things can be dealt with and we can bring about solutions and have enough hope to at least try to come at solutions. And I just don't even see that in what's being communicated uh, from a lot of people, Christians included. And it's something that I always have to remind myself about. Um, you hit it on the head. Ultimately, the people who pulled the trigger, the people who the person who sent uh, the bombs to people's uh, offices and things, right. those folks yes. are certainly uh the ones responsible but i'll say this uh it's it's hard to deny that trump's rhetoric from the beginning of his campaign didn't feed into some of those sentiments um his his promotion of violence at some of his rallies 
Um, yeah, the way that he really manipulated those those feelings to rally the troops. Um, not it is not the the cause. Again, we want to say that, but it's certainly putting fuel on the fire. And I think there's been a deliberate strategy to put fuel on the fire. And so, what I would say to my Republicans, brothers and sisters, who I'm not blaming, let's make sure that we are in no uncertain terms telling our your leaders that this is not acceptable and that they need to speak out against this at every turn. If we're not doing that, then to some extent we're complicit. We're condoning what's going on. And so we all have to be responsible in that. And that's why I felt necessary. And we don't have to say this is on the same level, but any degree of, of this type of uh, this type of rhetoric is not okay. But even even the things that were said by Clinton and Holder, I had to make sure that I said, no, this is not OK. And again, that's not to say right. they were equivalent, but they weren't OK. So you yeah. have to say something. You don't wait until it gets to the level of Trump to say, no, we shouldn't do that um, because I'm not going to base my standard on what's going on in the White House. So those are some things huh. that we just need to yes. keep in mind, making sure that we're being responsible and we're not. Uh, sending the wrong messages or creating the wrong incentives. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break. Uh, We'll be back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, uh, just in last week, uh, the uh, Turning Points uh, 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 Conference, uh, Turning Points USA hosted a young black leadership summit for black conservatives uh, that was attended by uh, President Trump, who spoke to the group. Uh, in front of them, he uh, praised uh, Jim Brown and a former NFL player and Kanye West. Uh, he re- he defended his uh his appeal during the 2016 campaign to black voters by asking them, uh, what have you got to lose? Which of course received pushback from, uh, the congressional black caucus among, uh, among others. Uh, but just a really, really interested, uh, you know, so, um, uh, so turning points, their communications director is Candace Owens, who has sort of grown in her profile, uh, uh, as a part of this, uh, over the, over the course of the Trump administration, you know, she was a, a, a key player in pulling this conference together. What, what did you think about it? What do you think of, uh, sort of black Republicans, black political conservatives and the role that they have, uh, in, in the modern Republican party? Yeah, this was an interesting meeting and it makes you think back to earlier this year when the African-American pastors sat down with, uh, with, President Trump. And and I'll go back to a, a similar uh, comment in that regard, whereas I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's automatically negative to meet with the president because the president has a lot of influence and you never know when somebody's going to listen to what you have to say. I think you do have to be aware, as I said last time, of the context of the format and of the subject matter, making sure that this isn't just uh, a photo op or something like that. And I and I and I uh, critiqued uh, the pastors who went into that situation based on some of those factors. Now, this was a little bit different because this wasn't just a conversation. Uh, this was people with uh, Make America Great hat, hats on and folks kind of rallying with cheers and all all kind of stuff like that. But before I get into that, let me say this. Um, these folks uh, who wanted to get their black conservatives, these young people who wanted to be there, have every right to be in that conversation. And, and and I defend their right to be there. I don't think that makes them less black than anybody else. Um, I really think the argument or the idea that being black is synonymous with being progressive on every account, I think that is false. Uh, I think the idea that we agree on everything politically is really just mythology. Um, you know, I don't see my black conservative friends as any less thoughtful or any less intelligent or engaged than my black progressive friends. Um, I may disagree with them, but I'm not going to sit here and call them names and act like they're somehow less black than everybody else. Um, I think that's a mistake. And I think we need to stop doing this. This That's doing that. This is not a monolithic group. Now, being a black conservative 
is not necessarily the same as being a black Trump supporter. Um, and you have the right to do both. But I would say that I do have conservative friends who are not Trump supporters. Um, and so if you're going to step into this conversation, then you need to make sure and you're going to be seen and you're going to be, you know, on videos and you're going to be in the White House showing so much support then you can't run away when the conversation comes about his rhetoric, about some of the things he's done, about how he's uh, treated immigrants. All those conversations, you got to be ready to face up to those things. So you have more than every right to be there. Um, I do question how you defend Trump in that situation. Uh, I would I would take someone to task if, if given the opportunity. I think someone like Candace Owens is actually I think she's articulate. I think she's intelligent. Uh, at the same time, I think she's made the decision to be more of an entertainer when it comes to politics than a very serious commentator or advocate. Um, her answers are thoughtful, even though I think a lot of them are wrong. The way that she articulates herself, you can tell that she's thought about it and that she uses certain rhetorical devices that take time to develop. Uh, and so I, I can say that even if I disagree with her. Um but it's just hard. It's just hard to defend what's going on in the White House, how it does impact not only African-Americans, but other minorities. And so I can't say I agree with what went on there, but I will always say that they have the right. They have the right to do that. But if you want to get into the debate, I'm certainly going to take you to task for the people that you support. And I hope that I will be taking the task for the same. So. It is what it is. I mean, every president has these these uh, these types of groups come through, whether they're showing the support or just to have a conversation. I would question how you defend what Trump what Trump is doing. But I, I'm not going to question uh, your authenticity based on that. We just have to have a real conversation about it. Yeah, I guess, uh, Justin, my main sort of response was just a bit of. Um, uh it, it just reminded me of all the all the missed opportunity that you know in the wake of the 2012 reelection the Republican Party did this what they referred to them uh, uh, what they referred themselves uh, uh, to it as an autopsy of the, the loss they they thought that they should have been able to beat Barack Obama and a lot of things came out of the autopsy uh, but one of which was that they just weren't reaching out to uh, all Americans, especially minority communities. And so there were all kinds of suggestions and even some energy around reviving uh, outreach to Hispanic communities and African-American community in like a Jack Kemp kind of way. And you, you saw Paul Ryan go on a poverty tour uh, in, in the wake of his loss in 2012. Uh, you, you saw... Uh, and then you saw in 2016 candidates like Jeb Bush, even Marco Rubio, candidates who uh, Ben Carson, of course, candidates who uh, had real um, real interest and and a real longstanding um, history of uh, doing interesting kinds of outreach for Republicans, uh, but 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 none of those alternative histories, you know, worked out. And so this was, you know, the fact that it took, uh, it, it, you know, you you could have imagined another Republican administration uh, doing meetings like this only with more political diversity and it not being two years into into their administration and so that was my main my main sort of uh it, i'm i'm you know there's there's part of me that's just that's glad that the meeting took place i, th I think uh, white house should be in should be reaching out to all all kinds of folks though this was a politically friendly audience even if um, even if it was, even if uh, it was maybe the racial makeup was different than a lot of the meetings we've seen at the yeah, there was a lot of talk. But, One uh, of the things that Candace know. Owens was talking about quite a bit is what she was calling Blacksit, which was the black exit from the Democratic Party. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you; I, I don't see a whole lot of proof yeah. of any such movement. Right. Um, and I think yeah. when it comes to the Republican Party, in a lot of ways, there's just been a lot of window dressing when it comes to those conversations uh, where some things are done yeah. on the surface. But when you get to the substance of it, there's not a whole lot there. Again, what I'm not going to do when people are having civil conversations and just expressing who they support, 
I have a hard time understanding, I'm going to be honest with you, how, how anybody could go there and celebrate President Trump in that way. However, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go to a point where I'm questioning somebody's identity about it. We'll just have to have a debate. And I'm pretty sure I would right, win right. that debate uh, because of some of the things <laughs> the president has done. But that, there's a line yeah. between that and me saying you're not this and you're not something else when I don't even know you. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. All right. Let's take uh, one last break. When we get back, uh, we're going to talk about a very well, actually, two serious uh, uh, subjects hopefully provide some some helpful information to you. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, just in last week, the New York Times had a interactive article that had some really distressing, unsettling images of children in Yemen where there's a civil war going on uh, that has been influenced by Saudi Arabia. So for folks who want to know a bit more about Saudi Arabia, we we talked about Saudi Arabia last week, particularly in in relation to their human rights abuses and uh, the the murder in their custody of uh, the Washington Post columnists. Um, so you could listen to last week's episode as we discussed that. Um, but but this this New York Times um, this New York Times interactive article really uh, really shocked a lot of people because um, uh, they were uh, used what what New York Times said was probably some of the more striking images that they've ever used in the history of the paper. Uh, and so uh, I would first, and, you know, folks can only sort of read as much and see as much of this as their hearts can take. And we want to be, uh, I want to be cognizant of the fact that people have various levels of um, of an ability to, in, to engage in, in, in this in a healthy way. But for those who are interested uh, the tragedy of Saudi Arabia's war is the name of the interactive article. Would urge people uh, again, if if you can, um, uh, to to spend some time with it. Know what's happening in Yemen, which some are saying is uh, uh, the most uh, the world's worst human humanitarian crisis right now. Uh, and, and then uh, just wanted to offer some some ways to help. Uh, the uh, Charity Navigator, um, which is a nonprofit group, is highly rated. Uh, uh, the Zakat Foundation of America that's doing work in Yemen. Islamic Relief USA, which is a solid organization, uh, a Muslim faith-based organization that's doing work in Yemen. Uh, the International Rescue Committee uh, is, is uh, doing acclaimed work in Yemen along with Save the Children, Doctors Without Borders, and UNICEF. And then, of course, our friends at uh, World Vision, uh, World Relief are doing important humanitarian work. Um, but uh, these organizations are looking for, uh, there are ways to volunteer. They obviously need financial resources, and they need our prayer. Um, and uh, I was... Uh, it's hard to look at those images without being moved to to, to prayer, and so uh, we thought it was important to touch that on on this week's uh, episode. Um, uh, Justin, uh, did you have a? I know you've been uh, following a bit, uh, of, of course, what's been happening in in, in Yemen. Were you able to? Um, what What did you think of sort of the? It was interesting the reaction to the Times. Facebook actually. Uh, ended up removing some, uh, n- not removing some uh, links to the article because the article people who posted the article, the, the the images would would show up on Facebook feeds and they were so jarring that that people uh, people complained and so Facebook actually, um, you know, they were. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't have the terminology in front, but they were they were offensive or. Um, you know, jarring, jarring images to be, uh, to come up on a Facebook feed, which, which I actually think maybe isn't the worst thing. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, did, did you encounter any of this just sort of, uh, on, on your social media feeds last week? Not a whole lot of it, but I, I did get a chance to see those, those photos and, 
you know, it's easy for us to distance ourselves mentally from that kind of suffering. Um, you hear about it, you see it every now and then, but it's easy to distance yourself from it. And so I'm with you. Sometimes we need to see those photos. We need to see exactly what's going on in those areas. And you can see, I mean, just from those pictures, you can see the suffering in these children's eyes. And if we ever get to the point where children suffering to that extent doesn't have an impact on us, then that says something about us. And so I think we do need to see those pictures from time to time. It also brings something else uh, in my mind, though, um, Michael, which is the identity of the United States um, mm. of those we support, what we support and what we condone. Are we going to be inter- interventionist? Are we going to sit and say, well, we have this alliance and we need this alliance so bad that we're going to stay out of this one, even though we see these children suffering. Who are we? What is our responsibility uh, to the global community? Of course, we can't do everything. And it's not always the government's uh, uh, position to do it. But if we can, um, if the church can come together and, and send support and do those things, it's really important. But as, as we both, you know, we, we're both in a position where we think government can do uh, some things about this, especially when it comes to uh, our allies We've got to push to do the right thing. So I would encourage people to take a look at those those photos. Maybe it'll get us out of our comfort zone a little bit uh, and really start thinking about what's going on in the world around us. Uh, I think we need to be aware of that. Yeah, uh, those are good words, Justin. Um, the, 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 the last thing I think I think we're going to discuss on this episode and just I just sent this to you kind of in the last 12 24 hours before the show we we often talk uh on this show about the importance of being both grounded in conviction and a passion for justice while also having humility particularly when it comes to politics about the about uh, uh, uh our ability to know the best policy instruments uh, to advance justice. (laughs) Uh, And I I think for a lot of folks, uh, that tension is very difficult and it's unclear why you'd even have it. If you know what justice is, uh, it seems like in politics, uh, it seems, especially in these times, that things are very clear. Um, You just address inequality where you find it, you address uh, pain and suffering where you find it. Um, and, and in some ways, that's true. Um, but we've talked on this show before about various approaches to criminal justice reform, that uh, in, in some cases, you have the very same people who uh, I, I think are pushing back on uh, the effects of some of the uh, policies that they themselves supported uh, back in the 90s uh, regarding crime and and how we prosecute crime and, and, and law enforcement. Uh, but a more recent example came up, and we're not going to talk too in-depth about it, but I think it's a good thing to think about. The New York Times on October 26 released two articles written by the same reporter, Nellie Bowles, uh, Nellie Bowles, um, and the title say it uh, almost by itself. Uh, uh, the title of one article is a dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. The article goes on to say that the, the people who are closest uh, to digital technology and particularly phones Uh, Many of them have decided they don't want their own children anywhere near them. Uh, There's a quote from, um, uh, I believe, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, 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 former executive assistant, who is now at Zuckerberg's uh, philanthropic arm. Uh, Listen to this quote, Uh, Athena Chavaria. She said, I am convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. All right. So you could read this story again, New York Times, October 26th, a dark consensus about screens and kids begins to emerge in Silicon Valley. And then the second article uh, has the title, The Digital Gap Between Rich and Poor Kids is Not What We Expected. The subhead is America's public schools are still promoting devices with screens, even offering digital-only preschools. 
the rich are banning screens from class altogether. And the narrative of this story is that after so long when uh, a concern among public school advocates and, and edu- uh, education advocates was that uh, sort of rich kids were going to have all this uh, access to uh, computers and phones and be sort of digital natives and be able to sort of navigate the new a technological world that we were having that poor kids would be left out because they couldn't um, have the same access to devices. And so uh, in many school districts, both as a result of public policy and philanthropy, uh, school districts, in some cases, in others, they were, they were not. But in some, uh, in many cases, I remember uh, Niagara Falls school district back, back home when I was in, uh, when I was uh, back in, in the Buffalo, Western New York area, uh, there was a, a program to put computers, uh, laptops in the hands of every child in Niagara Falls school district. And so a lot of these the poor school districts were flooded with, um, with digital devices, uh, and you know w- w- there are going to be a lot of studies about this. I'm not bringing this up as a, as a, um, uh, a conclusive result. I think that there are obviously sort of nuance of benefits and, and costs to this, but I raised this just in just a rate. Uh, we, we thought for sure, what could possibly be the downside of, of, of making sure that there was uh, equal access um, and sort of uh uh, proliferation of digital devices, even as young as preschools, uh, but but now it's coming out. Oh wow! Like there are some there are some negative effects actually of uh, uh, students who uh, spend so much time um, on screens are more anxious, and it leads to but potentially leads to mental health issues, or uh, they process information differently, and learning is different. Uh, and, and so uh, for me, again, we could talk about the specifics of this, but I wanted to raise it for our listeners as, as a more recent example that we don't just have to talk about criminal justice reform in the 90s, that actually the history of public policymaking, we've said this before on the show, uh, the history of public policymaking is a history of unintended consequences. And so for me, this is just one more a concrete example that we could grasp in a tangible way of how the best motives possible could motivate a policy intended to advance justice, but there are consequences on the other side of that policy that should just give us humility. Even knowing the consequences, maybe we'd say they're worth it. It was important to do this, uh, but we we learn about consequences on the back end of policy uh, making decisions that should uh, give us a sense of humility about um, about just how pure. Uh, uh, the policy instruments we're using are. Yeah, I think, and this is a, I'm glad you brought this up. I'm glad you sent this article to me because this is a very good example of how intellectually dishonest we can be when it comes to uh, looking back at policy, having 20, you know, having hindsight, the 2020 vision of hindsight to say, oh, this person did this. And so they're a terrible person and let me demonize them because they made this mistake. This happens all the time when it comes to policy, because as you said, policy is about, you know, proximate solutions. It's about erring on the side of what you think is best. It is not an exact science. And those who aren't familiar with policymaking often treat it like it's an exact science. And you only and it only goes wrong when someone's intentions are bad. And that's just not how policy works. And so I'm glad you brought that up. And I'll be honest. I was one of the people five, three years ago that would have said, yes, let's make sure these underserved kids have, you know, these computer screens and that they're getting as much technology as everybody else. I was one of those people recently. You know that I have two sons. I have recently before I read this article came became somewhat suspicious of the screens. Now, we don't give them a whole lot of screens. They don't have phones or anything like that. But when they got in front of them, when you took them away, the reaction was like, oh, this this is this is much." and so we we really haven't indulged that. And after reading after reading what you sent me, I was very happy that we hadn't. But it was really just by chance. I didn't I didn't know for sure. All this stuff is just is just coming out. 
I kind of look at right. this in two ways. There's the policy side where it's, it's looking like people just got it wrong. And this technology, we need to watch technology because it's 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 out in front of us and we're not really sure what the long term impacts will be. So there's that side of it. But then there's also a darker side of it, because if you read these articles, it also talks about how these uh, screens and these devices are made to be addictive. Um, mm. they, they have yeah, something yeah, called yeah. persuasive uh, design. Right. Uh, these, these designs where they're trying to make you come back where they're trying to pull you in and make you dependent on that device. And that is problematic. I've long said that we need more ethicists because our technology is way out in front of our ethics. And I think when you're designing mm-hmm. a device for a child and you make that device. Purposefully addictive. That's that's incredibly problematic. Um, You hear all kinds of horror stories about, hey, I let my kid watch YouTube. They're watching a cartoon. And then this cartoon turned into something that was almost adult content. And so there is a dark side to it where people are manipulating these things. Um, uh, What's our friend? And I can't I cannot think of his name right now. Andy Crouch. I yes. think Andy yeah. Crouch is is somewhat of an ethicist on this on this point, and Christians need to read his work when it comes to technology. Uh, he's really helped me understand how this works and how it can really hurt. Uh, how technology can really be destructive to families. Um, so I would look up that information, but we need in a lot of different realms, we need more folks that are focused on ethics, that are really investigating what the long term effects c- can be. Because when something moves as fast as our technology has been moving and we're not out in front of it with our ethics, then we could be in huge trouble and not even know it. So I appreciate you sending this to me. Uh, very good information. And let me tell you, brother, I send it to almost every parent <laughs> that I knew because it was so important and people just don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think right. most of it is malicious, but I think some of these uh, developers need to, need to watch uh, which, which direction they're going with all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, it's been, uh, we had a lot to cover. We're going to have a lot to cover uh, in the following uh, week. And we're looking forward to sharing uh, information and conversation with you again. The next you'll hear uh, from Justin and I uh, will be Monday, a Facebook uh, live event the night before the election. Hope you'll join us along with our, our friend and brother, Chris Butler, uh, for analysis and looking ahead to the midterms the following day. And then on Wednesday, we'll both recap uh, in a live event uh, that uh, that will be a live stream, uh, an event that will um, both recap the midterm elections and look ahead to what it means for us and for our communities moving forward. Justin, any closing words this week? Nah, just stay tuned. Check us out. You 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 said it all. We're gonna bring be bringing you a lot of content concerning the mid midterms and what we should do moving on from those midterms. So so stay close. We're trying to bring it to you. For the activists and graduates, I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment in the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants. It's like can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, yeah. can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.